Hey, it's Michelle, and we're so thrilled that Smart House Creative is our sponsor for this episode. Smart House Creative is a full-service publicity and marketing agency serving creative entrepreneurs and artistic projects. They specialize in social media management, media outreach, and audience development. Visit smarthousecreative.com for a list of services and request a custom quote. Martin, you told me once you get into a post-truth world, anything that is maybe wasn't, which is incredibly depressing to think about. The first thing that happened to us at CIA was like, what the hell is this? Welcome to the Cocktail Conversations. I'm Michelle Mitchell, and we are in crisis. That's probably not a news flash to you, if you still believe in news, that is. We wanted to know more, so we sent out bottles of Grovant Cellars High Country Red to pour with four of our favorites. Martin, I'm racing you and I'm winning. <laughs> you are. That's Gina Moore, the former New York Times East Africa Bureau Chief and the new editor of Guarnica Magazine. We met in person a few years ago on assignment. So we both showed up an hour early. We didn't know what each other looked like. And we each proceeded to have multiple glasses of wine on our own. And then we called each other. And she was sitting right behind me. Like, also, like, how did we not figure this out? We were the only two people in the cafe drinking at four in the afternoon. <laughs> By the way, guys, I'm operating on a big two and a half hours of sleep. That's Lauren Anderson, former FBI executive and last seen on this show, not believing me, in our special election election special. See this bottle? It's not uncorked. Because oh. I need to detox after the last two weeks of wine tasting all over Napa, Mendocino, Anderson, and Sonoma Valley. But I think that actually sounds pretty cool, you know. <laughs> That's Robert George, editorial columnist for Bloomberg News, and last seen on our very first episode, the election special. Not to be confused with the special election election special. Uh, when I first met Michelle, I was working at the Republican National uh, Committee almost like a couple of lifetimes ago for both of us. We know uh, so I, much about each other, we can't say any stories about each other. This is quite <laughs> true. Uh, the best news for me today is I got my first COVID shot. That's former CIA analyst Martin Gurry, who specialized in global media when he was with the agency and currently is the author of The Revolt of the Public and the Crisis of Authority in the New Millennium, which tracks how digital information is changing politics. So I dove right in with him. We talked about this in the last show, and the truth is on whose authority do you rest your judgment? And there is a real truth and trust crisis out there. And it seems to me that that is a very dangerous vacuum to fill. I guess the question is, is it earned or is it not? And that's that would divide whether you identify with the elites or do not identify with the elites. The elites will tell you, this is crazy. We know. We have science on our side. We can explain things. We know the policies. We know what the possibilities are. And you need to just shut up and listen. The public would say, okay, you say you're an expert, Dr. Fauci, but you have contradicted yourself in the space of one year about five different times, okay? And that's perfectly acceptable in a situation in which our knowledge set is limited. The problem is the rhetorical posture of the 20th century is, I know, you must listen to me because I know. And that, the first moment that is, it, it's shown that you don't, completely collapses. What Gurry's talking about is a simple idea. Truth isn't less important these days, but people have stopped trusting the institutions that traditionally delivered the truth. And this is at least two decades in the making. I was there at CIA at Global Media Center, which was a privileged place to be at because not only do you get to see 
the media coming in, but you could just point at something and say, translate that, please. And around the turn of the century, it sounds very mystical, but it was just a coincidence. Digital earthquake generated this tsunami of information. Scholars in the New Cal Berkeley measured the information produced in the year 2001, doubled that of all previous history, going all the way back to the Cape paintings of the dawn of culture. 2002 doubled 2001. That has more or less continued. If you actually chart it, it looks like a tsunami. We live in a world that institutionally was shaped by the 20th century. And the 20th century believed in these hierarchical organizations in which everything was done from the top down on the basis of I talk and you listen. And the idea that the public could ever talk back was literally never thought about because it was impossible. And the second the tsunami hit these institutions, every institution that was shaped by the 20th century lost its semi-monopoly over information that made it have authority. Gina? The institutions that we have that exist on the premise of exclusivity of power, which is really what we're talking about when we talk about authority, the claim to that exclusivity is crumbling. And it's crumbling both as and because there's a multiplicity of views that are being brought into the conversation in lots of different spaces, right? Now this is interesting because I hadn't really thought about how truth as I grew up knowing it may not exactly have been everything. Among the views that are finally being admitted into these broader conversations are those from people who would never share the assumptions about the United States of America that my father holds dear, for example. I don't know because I'm really only beginning to explore this in a meaningful way. But the notion of the ideals of the United States of America that are held by African-American citizens in their private homes and the notions that I was raised with strike me as pretty different. All of these institutions that were built up to help humanity survive through the 20th century have collapsed, if not literally, figuratively. And that includes something that three of us in this conversation are familiar with, the media. I would say it's largely the white male patriarchy. I would say that it's still very much in evidence in Africa and South Asia and other parts of the world, but it's still a male patriarchy, regardless of what the color of the skin is, when you're looking at who's running most of the world. It's interesting that these institutions that we look to as guiding lights, as things to be believe in, things that we are willing to entrust in authority, they've fallen by the wayside. Something I learned in our Zero Trust Society episode is that truth comes down to on whose authority do you rest your judgment? But authority is its own complicated crisis these days. We think that truth is either a, a platonic form or something like that, a gift from science, you know, whatever that means. But in fact, truth is something you receive from an authority you trust. I mean, I have no idea what a quark is, but I believe there probably are quarks in the universe. I've never seen one. And as I understand it, none of us ever will. But people that I trust that have authority in my mind have told me there are such things as quarks in the universe. That sense that there are people that you trust, that you turn to. And of course, the iconic type of the 20th century was Walter Cronkite are gone. And when authorities that represent reality are gone, truth is up for grabs. And I think that's where we are today. We've done multiple shows now talking about how social media has been used in not so 
positive ways um, and fomenting what I've nicknamed the anger industrial complex. And Martin brought up the 30 years war, which made me look up the 30 years war. The 30 years war, for those of you who are not into history, it was the most horrific war that Europe had known to that point. Millions died. It took Germany several generations to repopulate itself. And it happened uh, ostensibly over religion. But when you look at the details, they were fighting over a few dozen words that were different in each religion. And they were published in their books. If you had gotten into a uh, Wayback Machine and gone to the Thirty Years' War and asked people, what do you think of the printing press? They would have said, it's the most destructive, dangerous, and horrific innovation that has ever happened. Destroy it. Get rid of it. It has killed millions, okay? Well, today we know that the printing press was the most liberating invention in history, all right? We are, with the digital realm, in the very, very early stages of what is a colossal transformation from the industrial age to something that doesn't even have a freaking name yet. I know, but I'm not gonna tell you. <laughs> All of us in this group came up at a time when journalists covered politics and policy, voice of God style. And as Robert reminded us, political philosophies came from the same on high with think tanks and politicians setting the agenda until some new guy on social media blew it all up in days. You could debate whether you agree with conservatism or not, but there was a coherent philosophy there and all of those policy positions that kind of conform to conservatism and republicanism, broadly speaking, were, you know, one by one just tossed by the wayside and replaced with an allegiance to one individual. And I would be as concerned and horrified if that was happening on the Democratic side as I am on the Republican side, because I don't think it does our um, small d, small r, Democratic Republic form of government any good when approximately 45 to 48% of the public prefers to pledge allegiance to one figure rather than being part of a uh, shared philosophical vision. You have this public that is extremely alienated from these institutions and the elites that manage them, which were once very solid and once controlled the conversation and now are being battered by this tsunami of information, which is in essence the public talking back, really actually screaming back at the institutions. And the public is saying, I'm sorry, conservative and liberal, I don't even know what that means anymore. What on earth does that have to do with where I live and what I want? And I'm watching you people at the top of the pyramid talk these talks about what's important to you. And I'm down here trying to be heard. And suddenly a crazy person shows up. This guy is not one of them. And the public just grabs a hold of that person and uses it to bash at the institutions and the elites. And as long as that person is bashing and, and doing his job and is willing to do this, the public will support them. I see this trust as being massively eroded, not just since the beginning of the millennium, but in the last five years. We talked about the last five years, and it's just, it's this constant bashing, whoever the leader is, in this instance, it was Trump, of these institutions and undermining people's trust. So taking this a step further, what if this is it? Things have changed and changed forever, and what if we don't have the words to describe where we're at right now? One of the reasons we're full of conspiracy theories in the United States is that the reaction against the crumbling of authority is actually a reaction against, it seems to me, the idea 
that power can consolidate its power through the notion of a truth. And I'm going to claim my truth over here and that, you know, and then QAnon the hell out of everything while the liberal Antifa, whoever, whatever's are over here. And we just don't have a shared language for this because we think of it in sort of 19th century vocabulary, right? Our institutions are too freaking old for this problem. We're really in the grip of a problem that's freaking 300 years old and we can't get ourselves out of the vocabulary. You're quite right that the old labels of conservative and liberal, which may be outdated by you know 200 or 300 years uh, at this point. The, the concern that I have is that to your point that in this kind of post-truth, post-authority world that we're in, where you have a segment of the public that gravitates um, to a specific kind of an individual whose main focus is bashing and trying to bring down these institutions that uh, a certain element of the public no longer trusts. If it's the idea of bashing down of what is conservative or what is progressive or what is liberal or something like that, you can say, okay, well, maybe that's not so bad. Maybe we do need to have our assumptions challenged and we do need to start, to Gina's point, we need to come up with new languages to de describe some of these different kind of qualities. Where I think it becomes much more concerning is the period we're in right now, where the institution that in this case, Donald Trump is trying to bring down is the belief in elections, the belief that we still have a system that once we get all of us into the election booth, we can still have a trust or a faith in that. Trump managed to wear that down in the context of his supporters. And that now has real world effects. A certain segment of the country distrusts the election system and they're going to try and fix it in the sense of fixing it so it is weighted in their favor, even if that means upending the rights of uh, African-Americans in some states or poorer citizens. That, I think, is what you really need to be concerned about, where the distrust of authority is leading us. I was born in Cuba, all right? And th this goes to a couple of things that have been said uh, tonight. I had a dictatorship of the right, a dictatorship of the left before I was 10 years old, okay? So I can sniff it out. I know what's what. I think when you have this enormous fragmentation is the public is angry. The public basically has seceded from the institutions, but it's very divided. It's many, it's not one, it's very divided against itself. And so the one thing it can unite on, the only way you can unify and mobilize is by being against. And you have no leaders, you have no organization, you have no program, you have no ideology. And basically you tend to be against all those things. It's a very sectarian mindset. You live by modeling virtue, not by necessarily giving ideas, right? So the only way that you mobilize is by being against. And of course, a guy like Trump is ideal, right? They were, all you guys are acting as if Trump was a cause. He was an effect of this public that wanted a club to beat at the institutions. If he had not been there, they would have chosen somebody else. Wait for it, here it comes, where all of this can go. And what has been keeping me up at night ever since we taped this episode? Basically, the danger for me is not authoritarianism because in this fragmented landscape, it's very hard to get that. It's nihilism. I think liberal democracy is the only game in town. You don't have to replace it with a fascist or a dictator. You can just destroy it and have nothing left in its place. That's my concern. That's my fear. And now that's mine as well. 
If what Martin says is true about authority being earned, not given, then we've got to find ways to restore authenticity that deserves authority. Lauren had a starting point that each of us can do, and that goes back to the concept of intellectual humility from the last episode. We have to change our behavior because the reason everybody is so angry because they don't feel listened to. It doesn't matter who they are or where they are on the ideological spectrum. What they all have in common is none of them feels listened to. None of them feels adequately represented and they feel, and I would agree, having been in those institutions, that our institutions and our government has failed our population in terms of truly representing them and caring for their needs. And that to me is something I've seen across the United States is nobody feels properly represented and listened to. I think that's 100% right what you just said. This is something that's happening across the world. There is a sense that the elites talk to one another and kind of talk down. They feel like, well, I'm telling you what's what, you know, and then you are swimming in this ocean of information that's telling you something entirely different. And you're saying, but what are you talking about? That's not what I care about. And this is where things can get really weird in communication, whether it's in person or online, but does it inevitably always lead to negative outcomes? When you have a tsunami of information, uh, every voice is a tiny little whimper, right? So the louder you can scream and the more you can get the other side screaming at you so that you suddenly seem like an important person, you know, because then people start to line up. I mean, this is Trump, right? I mean, he just basically trolled people so they would start yelling at him and then other people who disliked the people that he was that were yelling at him would line up behind him, right? So that's, that is, I mean, what I always say is that the, the default language of, of the web is rant. These are like ritual combats. The great masses line up behind the people who do the fancy screaming and yeah, nobody dies most of the time. Y'all gotta start following some different accounts on the Twitter and the Instagram. I think it's a misunderstanding just to think that the language of the internet is anger. I think it's maybe fair to say that the language of the internet is emotion, but there's an extraordinary amount of activity going on among people who participate in digital discourse from a space of affirmation and appreciation. There's a lot of control that we can exert over how these things get picked up, how these conversations move. One of the problems that strikes me that is increasing in the States these days is that we bring all of our everything to politics as if it is the space to solve, right? And the idea that like people are lining up politically because they are or they are not listened to, that that doesn't, that doesn't, I don't see the logical end to that because what does listened to mean in the political sphere? It means agreed with, right? That's not how we're gonna solve most of this stuff. That's not a good vocabulary for most of the conversation and certainly the way the media constructs our political conversations, they're designed to be antagonistic. We will not solve problems that way because the whole conversation is designed not to, right? But the idea, though, that anger is a driving force of the internet, in particularly of social media, I think that's very real. And just to show how real it is, one of the reasons why Facebook is one of the biggest companies in the world is they realized that niche communities that were screaming and yelling at each other, there's money to be made in that. They figured out what the algorithm is. Did that in 2016 and they did it in 2018 and then they tried to you know, slow it down a bit in 2020 because they realized that they were you know, close to blowing up the entire world. 
it can't be ignored that anger can be wielded into a, a very profitable enterprise. My point was that the internet can be wielded in a different direction, right? Like I spent four years at BuzzFeed and they also made money off of understanding this. It was clear to me from the time that I spent there that the ethos that was built into using the virality of the internet, which is a neutral tool, right? was meant to be bent at BuzzFeed toward positivity. Appreciation, shared communities, shared ideas. There was a whole floor, multiple floors of folks who studied how all of that worked, right? And I'm sure they found things similar to whatever the Facebook folks find and right, Facebook went one direction for whatever reason, but it's a misunderstanding of the internet to say it's like inevitably on this train toward, you know, death and destruction, that's all. I mean, I don't know what it takes to wield it back on track. I mean, I, I love the fact we're pointing out some positive things here. I just think there's probably not anybody on this panel that hasn't been on the receipt end of some version of, I don't believe you, I'm going to believe this, and that there is palpable anger out there. What I launch into here is a longer version of this. In a recent social media discussion, I know, I know, with a high school friend, in order to make a point after she asked, how do you know, I told her former political correspondent, used to work on Capitol Hill. But instead of these credentials working for me, she wrote back, I don't give a rat's ass what you've done. That doesn't mean I don't know things too. I mean, what that person was telling you, honestly, I've seen this conversation happen again and again, was telling you was, you're one of them. We are members of the elite, you know, all, of, all five we of are us, you know. <laughs> you know, we're using the word elite a lot here. And so I wanted to ask you guys, how do we define elite? As, as Supreme Court Justice Potter Stewart said, obscenity, you know it when you see it. We have these institutions. They're very powerful. They're corporations, they're the universities, multiple institutions with enormous numbers of people. And once you are sucked into that world, you belong in a different reality from the people who are not in them. Do we have privilege? Of course we have privilege. We're all sitting here. We're privileged by virtue of what we do in our lives. And this is the point where I realized that this very episode kind of embodies the problem right here. So I get invited to a lot of conferences, you know, and you can be in France, you can be in Latin America, you can be in the United States, and damn, they're talking about the same things. Now check this out. This is where, just as we're polishing off the bottle of High Country Red, my guests point out that the revolt against the elites isn't really a revolt of the marginalized. And by the way, when you look at the revolts, the, what I call the revolts of the public, the people who take the streets, almost invariably, and this is even true, I think, in the later phase of the Black Lives Matter, almost invariably has not been marginalized people, has not been poor people, it has not been demographically, ethnically discriminated people. It has been the mainstream. It has been the mainstream way back in Egypt. It was a mainstream with the indignados in Spain, with the occupiers, with the Tea Party, and I mean, go to the autonomous zones in Portland and Seattle and all those uh, YouTube videos, which I find so fascinating. And there's white middle-class kid after white middle-class kid telling you about how he's modeling virtue and this is so wonderful that we're here. So the interesting thing about this, this is not a revolt of the have-nots. This is a revolt of the haves. And I think there's something missing in their lives that, and that's a deep conversation that I'm probably not qualified to have, but there's something missing in their lives that they're trying to gain by politics. One of the prominent protesters involved in the January 6th riot or siege or insurrection, whatever you want to call it, is a real estate developer in Texas who flew to DC on a private plane. I mean, this is not a member of, of an aggrieved class. In, in fairness, you go back over the decades 
popular movements, it is the bourgeoisie <laughs> that stand up, uh, ask the masses to follow them. This whole discussion made me wonder, would it have been less contentious at the start of the pandemic if instead of saying, follow the science, we instead embrace the less imperious sounding, be informed by the science? I'm not sure that would have made people less mad about masks and staying home, but maybe? I don't know. But the authority crisis is here, which means the elites are going to have to learn to listen to everyone else and get used to the idea that the information tsunami is here to stay. Luckily, no one is arguing about the wine. The next time we're doing it with Gina, she's going to be in Burundi and I can't get wine to her. You know, I could send you banana wine. Hey, no, don't do that, please. <laughs> uh, why don't you have a Primus beer? That would be good. Not, yeah, yeah. Banana wine has a certain appeal to it. <laughs> it's a bad hangover, Robert. It's like, <laughs> it's exactly the kind of hangover that it is a drink, as a matter of fact. Yeah, yeah vile. <laughs> what do you think? Are we going to figure out how to adjust to a world in which the public can't be walled off or ignored? Give us a shout out on Twitter. We're at cocktail underscore convos. Once again, we'd like to thank our sponsor for this episode, Smart House Creative, a full-service publicity and marketing agency serving creative entrepreneurs and artistic projects, including ours, by the way. They specialize in social media management, media outreach, and audience development. Visit smarthousecreative.com for a list of services and to request a custom quote.